What do you do when no one else is watching? What do you do that makes you happy for no reason at all? What are you obsessed with? I'm Leslie Arfin, and I'm a writer, but I'm also a dancer, a painter, a vapor, a dollhouse enthusiast, and basically just an overall hobbyist. My podcast, Filling the Void, is all about what other people are fanatically into. We talk about hobbies, even if you don't have one. Listen to Filling the Void on Tuesdays on the Erios Network. And subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Oh. Are we on? I like shambolic starts and endings to podcasts. I've been listening to yes. the uh, to the Brexit cast, which the, yes, I started listening to that yesterday. Yeah, which yeah. the BBC uh, are doing, uh-huh. and they're all it all falls, but they're all they're all they're all so tired. We are recording, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's um they're so tired by doing this yes. whole Brexit business. Yeah, that yeah. Uh, they just have given up. Oh, I don't care what you're saying. Is it your birthday? Know, it's your <laughs> birthday. Yeah, that was the one yesterday. Sing us a song. Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> Where's Laura? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I love it because number one, it's exactly what you want from that. You want a bit of insight from the people who know a lot, and each of them have you know got access to the sources in the cabinet and things like that. But it also is very funny because it feels like being in a student house where everyone's just got back and we're about to go to bed. But before we go to bed, we're going to have a cup of coffee and mull over what's happened today. Yeah. It's very funny. If if it's going to... I know we're straying off topic here, but if it's no deal, by the yeah. way, I'd quite like to just stay here where we are in this studio. Yes. It's got a cafe just outside there. Yes. And the toilets are really nice. I don't know if you've seen the toilets. I haven't seen the toilets. But the thing is, why would you go... You know, I know your, your family might yes. go, oh, where's Matt? <laughs> but actually... This is fine. Well, just stay here. I, I think what we can be absolutely honest about is if I do decide to stay here, my family will be rejoicing because I'll have put the heating back on. You are so um, mad. You turned the heating off and it went cold. It did. It, it did snowing. somewhat go. So so cool. a lot of lot of jumpers have come out because that's what jumpers are for. Claire Joyner says, has Matt bothered to turn up this time? Yes. And is he in jodpers? No. Well, I, I've, I've turned up every time. There's one time where I've not turned up. Do you actually have jodpers? No, I don't have I any jodpers. I bet, <laughs> I bet your wife says, go on, put your jodpers on tonight. <laughs> um, Vicar Dave, problem with the lovely Books of the Year podcast, which I've started listening to in the last few weeks. Great, we've been going ages. Brilliant, thanks. Is that it's giving me a uh, to-read list that's realistic from neither a financial nor time-available perspective. Nevertheless, I'm happy to have this problem. Next on the list, Sanborn. You will enjoy it. It's very good. It's the Jonathan Freeland book. It is. Uh, Carol, at home Carol, says, A wonderful listen. The Patient Assassin is now on my reading list. Not my usual genre, but all down to engaging storytelling by Anita Anand. Anita Anand, yes. Uh, another great recommendation from Books of the Year. Another great recommendation. Another, yet another. Well done. Peter says, We all need a bit of joy in our lives right now, and therefore I can't rem- recommend enough... Walking the dog with the sounds of Anita and Anne's Q and A with Simon and <laughs> not mentioned in your ears. Not mentioned. I laugh so much I disturb the sheep available. I disturb, <laughs> I disturb the sheep. Full stop. Available where you get your podcasts. I do this believe. is why we should read these before. There's we no start. Punk- Full there's no full stop. So huh? much that I disturbed the sheep available. Um, Claire Bissett says I'm just about to do that very thing. 
Uh, oh, walking the dog. Luckily, our dog walks are through fields where no one can see me laughing like a loon. And there are no sheep to worry. Uh, James, oh, this is quite a long one. Is this going to be serious? Oh, I don't know. I, if it becomes serious, I'll just change my tone. Okay, okay, do it. Yeah. So glad I found your podcast has really, really missed the book chat when it went from the other show. After starting to listen to the most recent shows from January onwards, I have now been steadily working through the back editions, starting at the beginning with Robbie Williams. Yes. And Linda. Laplante. Correct. Yesterday, I listened to the great interview with Roger Daltrey, but was slightly disconcerted when you discussed that due to the nature of a podcast, some people might not have listened to it when it first came out in December, but might be uh, listening to it, say, in March. Uh Ah. And I was. Okay. You hoped that things might be better in March than they were last (laughs) December. But after the omni-shambles of eight no votes last night, 27th of March, I can say with confidence that they aren't. They really aren't. Still, as some wise men from another five-star podcast are known to say, it'll be all right in the end. And if it's not all right, it's not the end. Correct. Yes, but the thing is with that, I mean, I humour Kermode with that. Yeah. But I don't believe it for a minute. Oh, uh, well, I do. I, well, it's going to be all right. I, in the I end. think it is. Uh, what's be that based all right. on? All right. Oh, it was based on nothing. Based, well, exactly. That, based, ba- there you go. Blind faith. Come on, everyone. Anyway, but that's that's very interesting. So you have to say things aren't particularly. No, they're not. They're, they're, they're really. Not. But hey, imagine how. Remember how we were feeling in December. We thought, well, I'm sure things will something will turn up. Something will turn up in the <laughs> next what about, three months. People will be listening to the, will be listening to this in June and July. In June, July. Oh, you've got to hope by June, July, we've managed to get. We'll be in the bunkers by then. <laughs> will we? Will we be? I'll be coming the to the end of my tin tomatoes. <laughs> and I'll be emerging. Actually, I'll just be hung- hunkered down in this cafe. I'll be drinking my own wee by this point in June. Do you, re- do you reckon? <laughs> it's going. It's going to be that good, is it? The future is so bright. It's Matt's going to be drinking his own urine. We're going to send you on your way with a smile on your face. <laughs> what a summer. Um, dear Simon, I would like to read your novel Mad Blood Stirring. Oh, yeah. But unfortunately, eye problems prevent me from reading most standard print books, and I don't like audiobooks so much, so I read large print books. Now, I've not found your book among these. I don't know who decides which books are produced in large print. Meaning. Presumably, publishers. Mm-hmm. Or perhaps authors can have some influence. Oh, perhaps you could investigate this and spend a few minutes on your excellent podcast explaining how and why decisions are made about which books are produced in large print. They seem to be produced by separate publishers from the standard editions. Is there any chance of your book being produced in large print? Thanks, Brenda. No idea, Brenda. Right, well, that's not very helpful. I mean, okay. come I'll, on. But I will, I, I will find out. My guess is they will do large print if it sells enough. You know, it's probably they need to be convinced that there's a market for okay. it. Okay. But I'm going to say that Brenda would, yes. like, would like one. Yes, so, please. So we better find one. Yeah. Kate Yo. I just discovered Books of the Year, discovered you in March. March? Yeah, March 2019. It's no better, and there is a massive lake under the ice in Antarctica, so it might be getting a lot worse. Right, well, you know, chin up, Kate. I'm sure it's going to be fine. Yeah, look, we're gloomy enough. Anyway, never mind you bringing us down with the news of the ice in Antarctica. (laughs) Something that hopefully we'll be able to bring up with our top guest today, who is Lewis Dartnell, author of The Knowledge, Origins, How the Earth Made Us. That's why I'm looking through the glass. I can't see him. He's still not turned up. He's now 10 minutes late, Lewis. Yeah. 
for someone who wrote the knowledge, he doesn't know his way around London. No, you, yeah, that's Boom. right. Yes. Very good. Boom. I might just read from the book. We could take it in turns. To <laughs> wow, would that be great? The that would be the new thing that we could do is chapter one. Oh, oh very good. There, there you go. Where there we were just Spider-Man. filling. Yes, yes. Take, I am so take, 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 that's right. That's okay. Lewis Dartnell is uh, with his origins, how the earth made us. Matt is now going to describe the cover of this book. Yes. So what we've got is we've got a an aerial view looking now. You're going to tell me whether I, when I initially saw these, I was guessing that they were paddy fields, Lewis. But you're very uh, close. So it's terracing and it is agricultural. But it is, I think, uh, Cyprus grows in Turkey. But again, you've got okay. the hillside and we've kind of cut terraces into it. To yeah. If you'd asked me, I'd have told you that. You w- would you have known Simon, about the Simon Cyprus? Good, good, good for obvious. you. Good for you. A very earthy look and then uh, picked out in white. Origins, How the Earth Made Us. Lewis Dartnell, author of The Knowledge. There you go. So this is Professor and Dr. Lewis Dartnell. He's research scientist and author. Is that the best way to...? Yes, I've got a professorship at the University of Westminster mm-hmm. and that's split 50% with my research in astrobiology and searching for signs of life on Mars and 50% on the communication side and writing books and doing short bits on radio and TV and podcasts. Okay, like this? Exactly like this. So with broad brushstrokes then, take us into what you're trying to do and what you're trying to explain with... Origins. So what I've tried to explore with this new book, with Origins, is look into all the ways that features of the planet we live in, features of, of, of the world, features of planet Earth, have affected and influenced the human story. So everything from what was weird about East Africa that drove us and our own evolution as this exquisitely intelligent ape, and how was the Earth been this defining influence across the thousands of years of, of, of human history and the rise and fall of civilization and empires, all the way up to the modern day of current affairs and politics. How can you see even the, the signature, the fingerprint of the planet beneath our feet in something as dynamic and nebulous as a political map and how people choose to vote in elections? Okay, <clears throat> on, that, on that subject, so let's illustrate that with a, with a particular point, and that is the mega flooding yes, uh, and the process by which the UK ended up essentially as an island. Yeah. Because that, more than anything else, I mean, you must have known this was coming when you were writing the book, but <laughs> the idea of these islands, which is so much part of our story, is very much part of this story. So just explain this little isthmus between Dover and Calais and how it disappeared and how we ended up. The so the, the original Brexit, if you like, we're going to drop the B-bomb in, uh, in this interview. And clearly like a defining part of British history has been our, our islandness. We We have this natural moat, this defensive narrow sea around us. And that has mean that we haven't been invaded by a significant army for over a thousand years since, ten, since 1066. And, and clearly that's been important for British sovereignty. We've had a thousand years of, of ruling ourselves and having that independence. But you could also argue that's been good for Europe as a whole as well. Once you have this kind of fortress nation, no one person gets to build an empire across Europe. So it was it was the British that stopped Napoleon building an empire across Europe. It, it, was, it was Hitler was stopped in his tracks. So it's been good for both Britain and the balance and equilibrium of, of the continent as a whole. And this original Brexit occurred just shy of half a million years ago. So Britain used to be joined to the mainland. We used to be like co-joined twins with this kind of narrow land bridge from Dover reaching across to Calais. And in fact, that whole kind of rock structure is 
essentially a ripple left over from the building of, of the Alps far to the south. So Africa crashed into the bottom bit, the southern bit of Europe, crumpled up these towering mountain ranges of the Alps, and the ripples further north where we are were, were part of this land bridge between Britain uh, and Europe. And during uh, an ice age about 450,000 years ago, this great big lake of, of water got trapped between these ice sheets, ice sheets during the ice age and that land bridge, and the inevitable happened. This, this natural dam burst its banks and this huge scouring mega flood, as, as a geologist would call it, scoured away in short order this, this land bridge between Britain and Europe. So we were, we were severed and isolated from that point on once the sea levels rose again with the interglacial period, with, with the period between ice ages when the, it's warmer and the, and the sea levels rise again. So you're taking the long view pretty much here. So, so, the book, so what I've tried to do with Origins is write essentially a, a history of the entirety of our species wrapped into the history of a whole planet. So it, it's very broad in scope of geography and, and around the world, but also looking back through deep time of the thousands of years, these very long trends and themes of our history, and then back through millions of years of, of our planet's past. I think I, I took a, a lot of uh, solace from that because obviously we are right now going through uh, a somewhat worrying uh, political situation. Yes. And it's good to know. Yeah, what I felt from the book was actually in the, in the grand scheme of things, this is not going to matter. It's going to matter an awful a, a, a lot to us right now. But in the grand scheme of things, it's just a, a click of the fingers compared to, to the amount of time that, that, that's <laughs> when you, when you already passed. Millions of years. Is it, absolutely. So, so it, it, it did give me um, some solace. What I found reading this book is that I um, I felt the same way as I did when I read um, Sapien, mm. which you every page you get a little fact. Yeah. You get something that you go, oh my goodness, I'd never thought about it like that. And then you stop reading and, and I sort of talk to my wife and say, had you ever thought about this? <laughs> and how interesting is this? I'm going to sort of pepper during the interview, and I'm sure Simon will as well, some of those facts that come out of this book. The first one I want to ask you about is early civilizations who all, well, not all of them, but a lot of them seem to congregate around were tectonic plates, yeah, Matt, yeah. which obviously they couldn't they have, have known. No way of they knowing. could not have known, and yet so many of them did. And also, that's not where you want to be <laughs> when those plates start rubbing against they each other. They tend to be a bit earthquake around tectonic plates. But how astonishing. And so, yeah, so I, this, this really jumped out at me when I was researching and, and writing this book. That, And I show the, the map in origin. So all of the pictures, all the figures in the book are maps I've created myself with some cartographic software that I've written and I've shown different regions of the planet and overlaying different data sets and, and different details. And this really jumps out at you when you look at this map in the book, where you look at the tectonic boundaries. So literally the cracks in the skin of our planets, these boundaries between the tectonic plates. And you plot on the early civilizations that emerged in the history of, of humanity. And there's a very close correspondence. For some reason, early civilizations have been drawn to these boundaries between the plates, things which are invisible or nigh on invisible unless you've got a trained geologist eye walking around the surface. And perhaps the clearest example of that and, and the clearest reason why that might be is from Mesopotamia. So Mesopotamia is in the you know, kind of northeastern part of the Arabian Peninsula. It's the land between the rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates. It's the cradle of civilization. The Sumerian civilization arose there before about 3000 BC. This is the very beginnings of civilization in human history. And what created Mesopotamia as a region is the 
chunk of Africa that was ripped up, ripped off by tectonic processes. And the whole Arabian Peninsula has been swinging away from Africa like a barn door caught in the wind. And it slammed into the underside, the southern margin of Eurasia. And when continents slam into each other, you drive up mountain ranges. So you've got the Zagros mountain range. And this great big, bulky, heavy range of mountains is literally sagging down into the skin of the Earth. The planet's crust is bowing down and it's created this tectonic trough that runs perfectly parallel alongside the mountain range, and that is Mesopotamia. The rivers Tigris and Euphrates flow down this tectonic trough, and because they are eroding fresh, young mountains, that alluvial, silty, really fine soil that they deposit is incredibly fertile. And it's just, if you're trying to go through the, the early process of domesticating crops and the beginnings of agriculture and having a growing population, the beginnings of, of cities, it happens where it's easiest. To, to grow crops. And that is in this incredibly fertile, well-watered region of Mesopotamia, again, because of, of a tectonic feature. And it's not just Mesopotamia, it's in the Indus Valley as well, and in, in India, in the, in the foreland basin of the Himalayas. It's happening at exactly the same moment in history. So are the main movers in your book, Lewis, plate tectonics, climate change, ocean currents and ice ages? They're the ones that I've written down. Are they the kind of the the main movers? Yeah, so I look at lots of different features of the planet, the, the tectonics, the climate bands, how climate has changed over time. My favourite chapter, actually, um, is the chapter about how something as, as simple and profound as how the atmosphere moves above our heads, the, the, the circulation currents in the Earth's atmosphere, which drive the winds on the Earth's surface. And it creates these very uh, distinct bands of winds wrapping around the whole world blowing in the same direction, prevailing winds that are almost like conveyor belts of winds in different directions. And it's using those trade winds and the westerlies, these bands of winds, that from about the 15th century, Europeans started building these huge trade networks around the world, crossing the Atlantic, crossing the Pacific, Pacific, linking together the continents. Um, and that then drove the patterns of colonization and empire building around the world. And all of that comes down to something as simple as which directions the wind blow in different parts of the world, which comes to how does the atmosphere move around um, as it's being heated by the sun. Um, and I just love that kind of like clarity of the kind of steps of cause and effect of this is how the atmosphere moves, this is what happened for 500 years of, of our history. Wow. Uh, more with Lewis Dartnell in just a second. It's the Books of the Year podcast. Lewis Dartnell's book is Origins, How the Earth Made Us. An extraordinarily huge subject, but I think why it's caught the imagination so much is that you've you've nailed it down to tiny individual things like for example the behavior of labor mp no not yeah. behavior labor <laughs> MPs, the number of labor mps and where we get labor mps so it's bringing it right back down to modern politics based on things that happened millions and millions mm -hmm. of uh, of years ago so this is tying it straight back into our into our politics now um explain because it's all about coal seams so just it is. explain that so so one of the maps that i show in origins is uh, the UK political map and constituencies that tend to vote Labour and the geological map of the UK and rocks which are beneath our feet that are 320 million years old. And there's an astonishing close match correlation between the two. And the reason for that is that the chapter in Earth's history 320 million years ago was the Carboniferous. Something broke in our planet's recycling system uh, the carbon recycling system, and trees would grow, they'd die and fall over and refuse to rot. 
And for millions and millions of years, these trees that died but didn't rot built up hugely thick coal seams, which then, in more recent human history, powered the British, powered us through the Industrial Revolution, which then spread around the world. And even today, we take something like a third of our total global power comes from coal, from burning that fossilised sunshine, which is what coal represents as a a sedimentary rock. So the link from Labour voting constituencies is the fact that Labour as a left-leaning political party grew out of uh, the trade unions and specifically the coal unions. So there's a, a relatively short chain of cause and effect in British politics there. But if you hop to the other side of the pond and to the to, to America, to the United States, there's this incredible link, this really clear correlation between uh, counties in the southern states, which tend to be Republican voting, and within the sea of Republican red in the voting map of the southern states of, of the US, there's this very clear, distinct, thin crescent of Democrat voting counties. And that particular feature correlates perfectly with rocks beneath your feet that are about 75 million years old. And again, it's this, you know, this why on earth would people tend to vote for Hillary rather than Trump in the most recent election and for elections stretching back in history if they happen to have rocks that are 75 million years beneath? If they have no idea, they're not digging holes underground and they're not geologists. Is it, it, it highly fascinating? There is a, so there's another point that I want to bring up, which is linked. You've you've mentioned America there, mm. and uh, I want to talk about horses. Mm. So of course you do. Uh, of course I do. So he horses for horses. He loves his horses. Uh, yes, he works with horses. We, we, we are now going to move past that, but I want to talk to you about the horses and about the fact that they start in America. Yeah, and yet they then disappear from America. Tell us, tell us the story, because I found this fascinating, of how horses went round the world. <laughs> so these equid species, so things like horses and the camel, have been truly, truly significant throughout the history of civilizations for thousands of years across the whole continent of Eurasia. If you want to move things around and don't want to have to walk yourself or carry it on your own back, you turn to a draft animal and... Oxen work well, so basically castrated cows. But what is quicker is a horse, and what will get you across very arid areas is the desert. And imagine how Eurasian history would have been for thousands of years if you didn't have the horse or the camel or the chariot or the, you know, the kind of Sahara gold link and all this history relying on just those two species of animals. Whereas the Americas were held back throughout the history of their civilizations because they had no large animal that could carry stuff or a person or trade. They were kind of hampered in that respect. And the great irony of human history is that both the horse and the camel evolved in North America. That's that's their birthplace. And they crossed into Eurasia across the Bering Land Bridge uh, a couple of ice ages ago. So in effect, they crossed in the opposite direction to how humans crossed in the most recent ice age when we were dispersing out of Africa and populating the entire world. It's almost... It's almost like we were passing one direction, camel and horse passing the other. We kind of did like high fives on, on the way past all the directions, although it was thousands of years apart because of the different ice ages. And so the question is, why did the camel and the horse, which evolved in North America, then disappear? And what's almost certainly the case is that their extinction was because of us. It was these humans migrating into North America with incredibly efficient ways of hunting and gathering. And we basically hunted these megafauna, things like uh, horse and camels and other species, to extinction. We had bows and arrows and spears, and they'd never encountered any kind of predator like us before. So the first Americans, the first people to 
migrate into and colonize the indigenous Americans there thousands of years ago, in a sense, without knowing it, the unintended consequence is they stimmed the, the technological progression of civilizations in America for thousands of years after that. And so Europeans didn't walk from Eurasia to America like we had been able to do originally. We built things with sails and we sailed then in the ship with Columbus and then, you know, the whole story of, of colonization and empire building after that. And then brought those horses back. And to brought America. the horses yeah. back to the Mustangs, which the wild horse across North America are basically escapees from the conquistadores who took horses across as, as, as a, a tool for war. Some of those escaped and they started breeding these wild populations of, of Mustangs across across North America. But that's where they come from originally. It's like they'd gone on holiday <laughs> for 10,000 years and then came back again. Oh, thank heavens they came back, Matt. Otherwise, you'd have no job. <laughs> Quite right. Where would you be? Very happy. Um, yeah. We've talked about the shipping forecast on the programme before. Yes. When we were talking about old radios and, mm. uh, and things like that. And the fact that there are shipping forecasts around the world. It's just that our one is particularly famous as far as we're concerned but yeah. then maybe that's because of the mega flood anyway um and then i we came across an area again in your book lewis which i only hear about in the shipping forecast which is dogger mm. as as they go around the the different parts of the uk get to dogger dogger bank and they tell us what the the visibility and the rainfall is and all that kind of stuff. I think, okay, that's fine. But i didn't know really that there was a dogger land mm-hmm. and i don't know why it was called dogger land but again turns up in your book. It does. So this is another great example of this deep and ancient link between our planet and its landscapes and human history. And Dogger is a great fishing area because it's this, it's basically kind of a kind of set of hills underwater that makes the North Sea quite shallow and that's where fish congregate. And from about 1000 AD, we started heading out and fishing in kind of deep sea conditions rather than just in rivers and, and off our own coasts. Um, across, um, you know, kind of north of, of Holland and, and across off the, the British coast. And what those prime fishing grounds actually were was during the last ice age and previous ice ages, when the sea levels were lower, that entire area emerged as dry land. It's this huge area that kind of connected the, the waste of Britain across to Holland and, and Germany. And that was dogland. And as our ancestors were migrating out of Africa and populating Europe, they would have spent a lot of time living and hunting across dogland. So what was the prime hunting grounds of our ancestors became the prime fishing grounds of people from the medieval period, which then led inevitably to heading out to the Atlantic, discovering the Americas, discovering the route around south of uh, Africa to get to India, and this whole age of, of exploration that we were talking about just now. It's astonishing. I mean, exactly like you said, Matt, you know, every page, every yeah. chapter has got one of those moments, which actually, if you live with one of them, it's really boring, you know. So, I've, look, I've just come... Oh, yeah. tell me again. No, do. You do. found an interesting oh, fact in our <laughs> Please, thrill me again. <laughs> Sunday dinner, huge fun around my house. I want to talk to you about... So here's another one that I, I, I found fascinating, is about China and Tibet. Now... Anyone who's had a sort of passing knowledge of uh, Chinese politics over the last few years will know how uh, important Tibet is to China. I had not understood quite why until I read your book, and mm. there, there are a couple of there are a couple of reasons that yeah. you and both but both of them very closely linked or with geological background to them. Just explain why. Yeah, so I think this is one of one of my favourite kind of current affairs stories from Origins because it's something that's in and out the news the whole time about 
China um, occupying the Tibetan plateau and the kind of friction with the Dalai Lama being being in exile. And it's it's a current affairs story that we're all familiar with. But but why? What is the deep reason? What is the fundamental reason why China cares about being in the Tibetan plateau? Because for hundreds of years of, of Chinese history, you kind of avoid this very high altitude plateau, platitude, high altitude platitudes. When someone on an airplane compliments you, very good. Uh, high altitude it's plateau. Your next book. <laughs> um, this high altitude plateau, which is basically just an offshoot of the, of the Himalayas. It, it's hard to live on, and, and the dynasties and empires of the, the Chinese Empire avoided that area, and. There is a defensive reason behind that. Perhaps China doesn't want India to occupy this, you know, commanding position over the heartlands and agricultural plains of of, of, in, of China. There is some mineral resources there, but actually, what really leaps out at you is when you look at the map and plot on it a particular form of information, and the answer just leaps out at you. And I show the the map in the in the book that I created. You've got the Tibetan Plateau. It is essentially the third polar ice cap of the planet. You've got the North and South Pole, and you've got the Tibetan Plateau, which is absolutely smothered with glaciers and ice sheets. And so therefore it forms the headlands or something like 10 of the most major rivers in the whole uh, continental region of Southeast Asia. And you you look on the map I show in in the book, and it's almost like the spokes of a wheel, of a bicycle wheel coming out from the central hub of the Tibetan Plateau. So the reason that China cares about Tibet is simply water. You want to be able to ensure that you have enough water for irrigating your fields and getting to your own population. And particularly in a world that is changing today with, with, with global warming, fresh water is going to be a resource that people will go to war over. Is this something that you think the Chinese authorities knew about? Or is it, is it just by accident they've suddenly realised, oh, this thing that we've been fighting over, making sure is still part of China, turns out we really were right because water is going to be a scarce resource in years to come? Well, I mean, I, I guess you could never tell what was, you know, kind of going on in the internal meetings and, and then the minds of, of, of kind of the leaders. But Tibet had not been occupied for hundreds of years. And much more recent history, China has now kind of expanded and it's, it's broadened its horizons at the same time as Russia was doing into the steppes, crossing this band of grasslands across Eurasia. And so one of the outcomes of that is that China now controls the headlands of all of these major rivers. And so it's not just a concern for China and India, but all Southeast Asian countries have got a vested interest in where those rivers are coming from. You have a chapter, I think it's the last chapter, <clears throat> about energy. Uh, and you talk about burning fossil fuels releasing a trap genie, um, which is something that I guess we have an inkling of. And you talk about climate change as, a, as an instrument of change all the way through uh, the Earth's history. But you do float the possibility that we might escape the next ice age mm. because of global warming. What, what direction are we heading off in in this chapter? Yeah, so, so coal was a solution that we found to a deep problem that we hit upon, we came across from you know, kind of early 1700s, mid-1700s, was that previously we had powered our societies, our civilizations, by sunlight. We grow crops and we eat them to fuel ourselves. We let a forest grow, we chop it down for firewood, and we make clay or smelt metals with the heat from that firewood. But in in Britain, um, in the in the 1700s, we... We ran out of woodland that we could coppice for, to, 
fundamentally provide energy for society. And it was realised that you could dig up this particularly black sedimentary rock that is particularly flammable and you can make your bread and uh, smelt your your ores for metal and then make clay into bricks by burning coal. And it solved the problem at the time. And we then worked out how you could use coal to not just heat things up to drive chemistry and make things that society needs, but you could get coal to do work for you. So you don't need people or draft animals dragging stuff around. You build a steam engine. And so in one sense, it was the coal in Britain and the steam engines that allowed that change society in a fundamental way that you don't need human labour and you don't need slave labour so much. You can make a machine do that work for you. But there was a flip side to that wonderful solution to the problem at the time, is that burning coal releases all that carbon dioxide that had been trapped when the forest died 320 million years ago, and we're releasing all of that CO2 back into the air exceedingly quickly in, 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 a, in a timescale of the planet. And we're all familiar with, with the problems that scientists are talking about on the news of, of uh, increasing carbon dioxide and climate change. And that's not something I focus on too much on the book. I, I, I want to focus on how the Earth has affected us, not how we're affecting the planet, because I think that's quite a familiar story now. But it's this, this kind of flipping over in the power dynamic, if you like, from the Earth directing human history into this now the age of the Anthropocene, as people call it, where it is Homo sapiens, our species, that is the dominant environmental influence on the planet, far more so than all of the natural processes. Uh, it's an extraordinary book. It's incredibly entertaining and you feel more intelligent after one chapter. <laughs> Certainly we did. <laughs> Origins, How the Earth Made Us is written by Lewis Dartnell. Thank you, Lewis. Thank you. Thank you both. <laughs>